Hey there, welcome to The Vegetable Beat. We've got a few uh, one-off episodes for you this winter, uh, kicking off with, uh, with this set of two, two-part episode here about overwintering pests. I recorded these back in November, and uh, there'll be a couple more episodes coming out based around some recordings we made during the Great Lakes Expo to look forward to as well. So sit back and enjoy. I'm here with Sophia Zendre, the vegetable entomologist here at MSU. She's here to discuss with me what some of our insect pests do in the wintertime and what to expect given certain conditions before and after winter um, and what sort of practical management tips may apply to bugs that overwinter in different ways. So welcome, Sophia. Thank you for coming. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. This is going to be a two-part episode with the next part later on this week about diseases and talking about very similar stuff, how they overwinter, what, what can you do, what patterns might you learn from. And then we're also going to make this into an article for the Vegetable Growers News Veg Connections column that'll come out later on this winter. So let's get into it. Sophia, we've got a lot of bugs that feed on vegetables. And when it comes to how they eat, you can kind of break them into two categories. We got chewers and we've got suckers. Those are the very basic ways to differentiate how they eat your crop. But they overwinter, like, and they're animals, right? So they have different ways of doing it. What are some of the common patterns, common ways that our insect pests use to get through the winter? Yeah, so, so we do categorize them based on how they survive the winter. And there are many ways to split them into different categories, um, one of them that we can maybe start with is to talk about whether they stay here in Michigan or not. Um, so the ones that do not overwinter in Mich Michigan have to migrate to Michigan every spring or summer. And the ones that do overwinter in Michigan are ones that can spend the winter in different life stages, which by which I mean that they can uh, overwinter as eggs or larvae or adults. And even within those, we can split them into categories where insects require a cold treatment. So basically like trees, they have to have a pause in their life cycle during the winter that's associated with the cold temperatures. And then there are other insects that do not require this pause and they can just cycle through generation after generation. So think about things like thrips or white flies that are your typical greenhouse pests, they don't break for the winter. They just keep going one generation after another very happily. But then think of things like Japanese beetles. You don't see Japanese beetles during the winter. And in fact, even when we try to bring them into the lab and uh, rear them in colonies, we have to give them a pause during the winter. They just don't want to wake up and continue their life cycle. Okay, so kind of like a biennial crop, like carrots or onions or something, where the first year you get, you know, the harvestable part, but if you want them to flower, they need to have this sort of like downtime, this chill time. Yeah, yeah. Or think of um, fruit trees. I mean, fruit trees need to have a dormancy, right? There's an obligate oh, yeah. dormancy for apple trees and the like. Uh, they just like are not going to start um start up and uh, flower without that cold treatment or think of tulip bulbs, you know, all of those things need to have this cold treatment for them to continue their life cycle. 
Okay, that's that's great to know. Now, we you mentioned that there are some bugs that don't overwinter here, but they're still pests here. So that that means they come here on the winds or they migrate up as things green up. Uh, and then uh, they just, just die in the winter then. Is that what happens? They just can't hack it here? Yeah, yeah. Basically, they when the when the first frost, harder frost happens in Michigan is usually the signal for things to either, either die or to go into this winter diapause. And um, so maybe we can talk about these migratory insects. A lot of them overwinter in the Gulf of Mexico area, Texas and those places, and even maybe further south. Uh, you know, think of one of the iconic species, the monarch that is very, oh, yeah. very known for migrating uh, up to, from all the way from Mexico to Canada. And, and many of the pests do those kinds of things as well, where they spend the winter down south and then they through generations. So it's not like the same insect comes from Texas all the way to Michigan, but they settle, they pump out a generation, so to speak. And then the next generation makes a little bit more headway on its mm. on this northward migration. And slowly, slowly, they make their way up as the temperature is warming up in the spring further north. And eventually, they will come to Michigan. Now, it, it's, it's not always as straightforward as that, I just want to point out, because some insects like aphids and um, leafhoppers can migrate on weather fronts. So sometimes you do get the same insects uh, coming up very long distances because they, what they do is they um, go high up into the uh, higher uh, air layers, so to speak, where they can get into um, these large streams of, of air that carry them long distances very fast. And then eventually they drop out of those air streams when they get to Michigan. So, so there are these two strategies that I just wanted to point out. One is the mm. generation over generation. And the other one is this really long distance, quick movement in these yeah, like an air, an airdrop after a storm system with the right pressure exactly. on different areas. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I think uh, sweet corn growers are always looking forward to the first big airdrop of corn earworm moths That's right. yeah. on, the, on those types of fronts. Um, so then, so those come up here, they're not expected to live. They might head back south in that same incremental pattern, or they might just die. But then we have others that stay. Um, and the ones that stay, what do they do? Do they just... Do they just uh, just park it right in that vegetable field or they do they do something different when things start to get cold or the crop comes out or, you know, what happens there? Yeah, yeah. So so maybe one thing we should mention is that insects, unlike us and um, warm blooded animals are so to speak, cold-blooded. So their body temperature depends completely on ambient temperature. That's why you don't see them being active in colder temperatures, usually below 50s, where most insects are not going to be able to move around because their muscles are not warm enough to uh, provide movement. And, um, and, and in the winter, they have many, many different ways that they can deal with the cold temperatures. One of the really well-known ones that we understand fairly well is that in, in order to prevent ice from forming in your cells, they can increase the uh, concentration, so to speak, of their cells. So that means that the, the freezing temperature of the cells is much, much lower. So they don't actually freeze. There's no ice forming in the insect. So let's say that Ben, you went outside in the you know polar vortex, 
you wouldn't survive. And one of the reasons you wouldn't survive is that there's a lot of water in your cells that all mm. turns into ice. And when we want to thaw you out, that ice is actually breaking up your cell walls and you're just yeah. going to be a soup of water, essentially, when we yeah. thaw you out. Because the water cells, expands and breaks the cell membranes, right? And, and, it, and, and the ice has these sharp edges on top of that that also breaks the the membrane. So expanding and these edges are both detrimental to the cells being intact. But like. because, because the insects can increase the concentration within the cell, that they avoid this problem uh, by and large. So it's imagine like it's antifreeze in your car is what they mm -hmm. turn the liquid in their body into during the winter. Oh. So that's a huge strategy for them, how they survive the winter. They just turn into antifreeze, little sacks of antifreeze. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, okay, so maybe we can talk more about like how they strategize. So some of them, um, spend the winter as eggs and eggs are, um, you know, they're easier to hide in, they're small and they're easier to hide in like leaf litter and leaf litter can provide a lot of uh, thermal insulation. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of, lot less cells that you can, you have to manage. So, so eggs are like a really efficient way to overwinter. Yeah, then there like are canning, it's like you're, you're like <laughs> canning your product there. Yeah. <laughs> um, another strategy is that you're you're in the soil below the frost layer. So think Colorado potato beetles. They actually will enter as adults, but they dig down into the soil and um, they overwinter below the the, the frost layers. And so uh, when the spring comes and the soil starts warming up, they sense that temperature change and they start digging upward out of the soil. And that's why usually when you have a warmer spring, you start seeing Colorado potato beetles everywhere because they, they feel like it's nice and warm and it's time to come out of the soil. So digging into the soil is one. And then a lot of other insects hide in places like we talked about already leaf litter, but they can also hide in tree bark. So think mm, so um, some off, like off field places. That's right. So think of things like brown marmorated sting bugs. I know that many people see them yeah. in their houses, but usually if you're talking about an agricultural field and if you have brown marmorated sting bugs, they will just walk out of the field and into the woodlots next to the fields and find trees that have looser bark and get underneath the bark or decaying pieces of trees and they will overwinter in there. And we actually just did a, did a study on overwintering of asparagus beetles, and we tested how they overwinter in different kinds of substrates. Mm -hmm. And asparagus beetles actually really like to overwinter in asparagus stalks itself. So they oh. feed on asparagus and they can overwinter in that hollowed out stem mm -hmm. that's left after the growing season. So a lot of the times, if you walk around an asparagus field and you pick up these pieces of stem in the winter and you crack them open, there's a line of beetles inside oh, wow. the stem overwintering, but they can also utilize leaves. So they do uh, use uh, trees that are blown into the field from the, or, or leaves that are blown into the field in the fall from the surrounding woodlots. Again, that thermal insulation is what they're looking for. So not all insects are going to dig into the soil. There's a lot of other places that they can hide during the winter. I remember talking to Celeste Welty once years and years ago when I was a grad student in Ohio, and she told me that cucumber beetles just uh, 
try to they, they move away from the field slowly over time as it gets colder and colder and colder. And the longer the crop is there, the longer they stay in in the field. Um, and so it makes me wonder if crop destruction when you're done, I mean, with pumpkins, you're holding it on for as long as possible. But for other crops where you might be done uh, earlier in the season and you don't want the pest to hang around as long, it might, does it make sense to you that destroying that crop sooner might might mitigate some of the time they spend there or if they reproduce in the fall or mate in the fall, then they've got like less time to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly what we were thinking is that one of the ways that you could perhaps manage asparagus beetles in this case is to chop up the stalks to help that um, break down along and prevent from these like larger pieces of stocks remaining in the field that they can actually use for overwintering. Right. So I think that there's a lot of that going on where if you can just help along that decaying process that takes place over the winter by chopping up debris that's in the field, whether it's the crop or leaves that are blown into the field, it's just going to provide less space for things to overwinter right in the field. That means that they have to spend energy to move away from the field. They, during that trip, they may come into uh, contact with natural enemies. So there's more peril if they have to leave the field, I feel like, and that provides for lower survival. In the yeah, more, more peril. I like that. And yeah, I, I went off on that tangent on pumpkins. You're talking about asparagus, which is held even longer yeah. for the benefit of the crop, right? You want all the carbohydrates to go from the fern to the root. So yeah, that makes um, even more sense to be more conscious of where those bugs are hanging out. Um, cool. But you know, that that's uh, the other point I was just going to make is that that's why we entomologists harp on crop rotation so much. I know that uh, maybe the pathology side of things is some, somewhat similar, but you harbor pests in your field over the winter. And so if you can grow a crop in that field the next year, that's not a host to that pest is the best way to manage uh, pests uh, in many, many, many different crops. I've always wondered how fruit growers put up with it because they don't have that luxury and and asparagus growers either, but they do have tillage they can utilize, which is, which is something, you know, um, and speaking of tillage, so some of these bugs, you were talking about chopping up the stalks, which you could do above ground, but maybe a little bit of tillage. But some of these bugs that overwinter in the soil, how does tillage affect them? Is that is that something that's worth worth doing or can you till too much or is there certain times when you should and certain times when you shouldn't? Any ideas there? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I worked on Japanese beetle, as I mentioned earlier, and one of the things that we looked at was tillage because the larvae overwinter in the soil and um, more than anything, the tillage helped with taking away their food rather than directly killing them. It just okay. turned over the soil, but it didn't directly. I mean, some of them did die, but not enough to have appreciable numbers of mortality. But when you tilled, you took away those uh, roots that they were feeding on in, in Japanese beetles case, it was grass roots that they, the larvae were feeding on. And, and that was more important than anything else. So I think it's worth clarifying. I, I didn't understand before, perhaps that these ones that go under the soil, they get below the frost line because they don't actually like turn off their bodies, right? They're still active. Um, it's, it's, it's a mix. I mean, they can, so for example, in Colorado potato beetle, they can survive short periods of, 
uh, really cold temperatures, but it has to be short. Like it has to be no more than like hours or a few days. Mm. Um, if it's, if it's going to be weeks there, you know, it's game over for them. So again, it's like a, a balance between the length of the cold and, um, how deep they are and how well prepared they are to overwinter. Okay. I think a lot of growers, and this kind of leads to another big question, but I think a lot of growers consider tillage a tool for some of these bugs because I think the, the common conception might have been that they're dormant um, and you just, just they choose where they want to be going into the fall and then tillage puts them where they don't want to be. They're either too high or too low or directly destroyed. Or, But it sounds like some of them are actually active and feeding and by tilling, you're actually messing that part up. You're like kind of starving them yeah yeah i mean and it has to happen during the time when they're feeding so if you till in the winter it, it really doesn't matter anymore but people don't till in the winter anyway so that wouldn't make sense but mm-hmm. um but tillage i think does disturb the soil but it doesn't um disturb it enough to cause really high mortality you're not like sifting through the soil mm-hmm. and trying to slice up every insect it's like huge chunks of soil that you're turning it's usually not very deep um i mean not very deep in the sense of how deep insects go to overwinter so i feel like it may have some merits in some situations but by and large it has to be treated with caution like i don't want to put it out there to people that if you till you're going to take care of all your problems no i think crop rotation is a much more powerful tool uh, compared to tillage. So it sounds like keeping tillage as a, as a multi-purpose tool where maybe the primary thing is incorporating crop residue, incorporating pH changers or something like that. And then the insect thing may be a side benefit, but not yeah. like the main one. You wouldn't go that's, out and till just for that. That's exactly how I would think about it. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I got another big question for you that you alluded to just earlier about uh, Colorado potato beetle. Uh, in in the winter, usually in the spring, I, I end up talking to growers about their observations of the winter, and, and sometimes I get questions or they have comments about the effects of this, whatever winter we had, it was warm or mild or a lot of snow or almost none, what does that mean for some of these insects? And are there moves that they can take based on that, based on a, a winter of a certain type for, for insects that may be you know, more prevalent after a certain winter versus another type of winter? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of things that I guess I want to touch on with that is that I think many people understand that snow can provide thermal insulation to the soil. And so by having snow on the ground for extended periods of time, you're actually increasing the chances of a lot of things surviving because they don't get those stresses that come from being exposed to cold, cold temperatures. Mm. And with climate change, we are able to measure that these um, more consistent winters where we have long periods of snow cover or long periods of cold weather are becoming very infrequent. They're going away. We have a lot more variability and on average, we have warmer winters. In fact, I think 2020 was one of the warmest winters on record. And um, And with that, what happens is that you do get some snow cover, but then it goes away and then some snow cover, then it goes away. So they get this variability. Um, You also get the fact that the frost layer that we just talked about is not as deep. 
So that means mm-hmm. that insects that overwinter in the soil don't have to dig as far down, meaning that they don't have to expend energy to go all the way, you know, down 30 inches to stay below the frost layer. Now they can just uh, go maybe like 10 inches to stay all the way through the winter below the frost layer. So it's energy savings for them. And uh, you, you just see a lot more survival of insects in these warmer winters. And also, I wanted to know that the the frequency of these really cold uh, events, like the polar vortex, is also decreasing. So when we have these polar vortexes come up, uh, they also help to kill insects off during the winter. And the longer they stay around, the more insects are going to die. But the less frequent they are, then you have, again, a lot more insects surviving the winter. So there's a lot of this... Uh, change in temperature and warming that contributes to uh, increasing survival of just about anything that you can think of that overwinters here in Michigan, not just the example that I gave with the, with the soil overwintering insects. Yeah. I, th- I think I heard uh, a story a few years ago. It was the first year I was on this job. The, so 2013, I believe. Or, two, or 2012, I forget which, there was a, there was a late frost that uh, took out a lot of apple blossoms. And so that, it, it, I'm sure it also impacted insects that were active at that point in time. Uh, but it had an indirect effect of then essentially cutting off apple fruit production for an entire year and all the pests that rely on the apple fruit. And then the next year, the population of pests had been drawn down so much. And we had a favorable spring, good flowering conditions. And not a lot of pests and it was like a just a bonkers crop of apples the year after because of this delay of this this one freeze event essentially or the series of freeze events um that i don't remember if there were polar vortexes necessarily but but those are always something to look forward to for insect kill if it's already started to warm up a little bit and also a source of a lot of tension for growers who have some perennial crops because they're like oh the flower buds um, yeah, yeah, I think it's a little different with annual crops because you can always replant them. So mm-hmm. the pests are always going to have something to feed on, right? Yeah. Well, so it sounds like if the climate gets to a certain level uh, of, of, of winter mildness, we could see insects with a higher survival rate that already try to overwinter here and they've already done it successfully. But then we'll probably, I would assume, have some pests that don't normally survive up here. And they come up every year through series of migrations or through wind, and they might survive too. Um, and that would stink. But we already actually have environments where that happens in hoop houses and greenhouses. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could talk a l- briefly about that. What are some of the most common pests in those environments? Um, let's just start there. What are the common pests in our greenhouse and hoop house production? Mm-hmm. So I would say thrips, mites, whiteflies, aphids are probably the top ones that probably mm-hmm. everybody that has hoop houses or greenhouses will have met and managed, hopefully. Um, I will say that some of these are um, problematic for a couple of reasons. You, you will, um, if you buy propagation material, let's say from the South, you might actually bring them into your greenhouse, even if you had a clean greenhouse to begin with or hoop house. Mm-hmm. 
So you have to be really vigilant to not to do that, even in the winter, if you're trying to start your transplants, let's say in the winter and you're buying them from a Southern state, you have to inspect them really, really carefully so that you're not starting your own population in your greenhouse. And I've heard of, the, I've heard of some growers doing like a quarantine of yeah. incoming material and even some prophylactic treatment, just like right off the bat. Is that, is that what your sense is too? Is that yeah. a good idea? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've heard, I've heard of those things as well. And, you know, like we've heard of like sweet midges is one of those that have happened to come up with transplants. So there are these oddballs that are not the ones that I've listed just now. So you have to be really careful and inspect those transplant materials before you uh, introduce them into into your greenhouse, especially if you have other crops in there already that can get infected. Uh, But the other thing that I was going to mention is that these places, greenhouses and hoop houses, then give an opportunity for insects to overwinter in an ideal environment and then infect your field from there, right? So Mm -hmm. um, even if they don't have to migrate, the infestation can come out of the greenhouse or out of the hoof house and get into your field, which we have had situations in the Mich- in, here in Michigan with, um, I believe it was thrips, uh, that the greenhouse was the source of the infestation. So you have to be very careful to understand how these things interact with each other, that uh, if you have thrips show up, super early in the season, for example, that might be because they have gotten out of the greenhouse and started infesting the plants. For that, a really good indication is, is the infestation really bad close to the greenhouse? Is it you know, gradually getting less and less um, severe as you're moving away from the greenhouse? So that could give you an idea of whether the greenhouse or the hoop house is to blame for the infestation. So those are the two, two things there that I would really keep an eye on. And uh, I don't think you mentioned this, but uh, is, I want to ask you, do you think one of the reasons that thrips and white flies and aphids and mites are sort of the, the big baddies uh, of the greenhouse world, is it because they're such generalists? They don't seem to, in my experience, I think I, could, I especially mites and aphids, I've seen them on almost every, every type of vegetable crop. And some of them start as transplants and they start in a greenhouse. And so that seems like an easy you know, vector point. I'm not as solid on thrips and whiteflies. Can you tell me a little bit more about them? Well, I think that all of them are, one, one common thing across the board is that they're really good at reproducing in large numbers, right? Okay. A lot of them don't need to mate. So oh. that's a commonality across them that they can just reproduce. The female can um, create clones essentially of itself, which saves them a lot of time with, without having to find mates, they can just pump out new generations. Uh, so I think that they, they have become notorious pests because of some of these biology traits. Also contributing is that many of these are some of our poster pests for becoming resistant to insecticides. So you have a confluence mm. of the ability to reproduce really easily in high numbers and be able to be resistant to many of the insecticides that people are trying to use to kill these things. And so that's, that's what makes the perfect combination for a pest, so to speak. Yeah. Shoot. So the, so the, 
So the more frequent a bug is alive, the more frequently they're probably getting sprayed with stuff. And so we see resistance show up with these pests that, that can handle uh, these niche environments, these overwintering environments that some of our other annual pests, like they just take a break. So we're not constantly hitting them with something. It's, a, it's a, more of a seasonal insecticide exposure. Though I know resistance happens, like Colorado potato beetle, I'm aware of some resistance there and diamondback moth and things, but uh, very neat. Yeah, yeah. I think that there has to be a genetic underpinning to being able to be resistant to insecticides because there are a lot of other insects that match some of these traits that they can pump out a lot of babies, but are not resistant. So, so you know, it's, it's really just that combination of biology coming together that, um, you know, how, aphids are notorious for becoming resistant. Same, same with thrips and mites and white flies. Like these are the classic <laughs> cases mm -hmm. for insecticide resistance, right? Yeah. Um, I only have one more question and I'm hoping it'll set us up for the, the discussion that I'll be having with Lena later on. And it's like the link between insects and diseases. And that is that insects can carry some viruses Mm -hmm. um, do you have anything, any commentary on that about, you know, which are the more, which are the more important insects that vector viruses and how winter may affect them? Yeah, that's a, such an interesting question. So a couple of insects that I could mention here, maybe one is a cucumber beetle that can harbor bacteria that causes wilt. That's really well known. Right. And not a virus, but also, but vectored it, by Yeah, bugs. exactly. Right. So there are other things that they can harbor, not necessarily viruses, unfortunately for a lot of people, <laughs> but it, basically the bacteria stay in their stomach during the winter and that's how they overwinter in their stomachs. In other cases, for example, with leafhoppers, um, the disease of the phytoplasma that they carry uh, actually stays in plants that overwinter in Michigan. So it doesn't oh. necessarily have to stay in an insect, but you can have plants that are infected. They survive the winter. And so when the insect shows up, it can get infected as it's feeding on the plant and then transmit it to other plants in the field. So there's a variety mm -hmm. of ways that diseases can overwinter, whether they utilize the pest itself or other plants. But yeah, those mm -hmm. are the two, I would say the two main strategies. Also, okay. that you can get infected insects migrating up to Michigan. So I think that that happens a lot with what I mentioned already, astral leafhoppers, is that we get insects arriving to Michigan already carrying the disease. Right. And I, and, uh, I mean, like aphids and thrips are pretty big virus transmitters too. And they're brought up, yeah. uh, via wind and yeah, through propagation, as you'd mentioned before. Um, I think every year I see tomato, tomato spotted wilt virus somewhere mm -hmm. likely coming from a, a, you know, a greenhouse infection from transplants grown under hanging flowers, which is just, you'll never get rid of it. It's a very profitable thing to work vertically, you know, use a bench space, use vertical space, but that's a risk. That is a risk that you run. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, on any of this? Any other final comments that you have? Well, yeah, I mean, insects are just so good at overwintering in many different kinds of ways. So um, <laughs> it's unfortunate for many growers that um, they, they have to think about how, I guess, the changes that we're experiencing with warming winters is going to 
change the landscape of how insects show up in the summer. I get a lot of um, calls for for different crops, many different crops after winters that have been warmer, complaining about the onslaught of pests. And I think that that's something that growers have to become a little bit more familiar with is to manage uh, earlier and earlier, larger and larger populations of insects after these warm winters. Okay. Well, great. It sounds like there's some weather patterns that growers can key in on. And uh, those that already know what sort of insecticides are available to them may, uh, may already know what some management options are once the insects start to emerge. Um, and then as far as tillage goes for trying to prevent the ones that overwinter here from successfully overwintering, we have learned from you that it's marginal at best and should be combined with some other sort of tillage operation because you can't necessarily count on that doing a, a big dent on the insect population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then be sanitary with greenhouse transplants and what you're bringing in. Try to avoid bringing in pests that would otherwise need some kind of big wind current to bring them up. So, Sophia, thank you for being here with me today. And Thanks for uh, having me. It was a lot of fun to talk about overwintering. All right, folks, that was part one. This episode is uh, put together by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. Uh, it's a network of uh, researchers and educators across the Midwest region. And this podcast is sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, as well as the University of Minnesota, who helps pay for our uh, hosting fee for the podcast. Stay tuned for part two about diseases and some additional episodes coming out later uh, based around the Great Lakes Expo, a couple of sessions that we recorded there. And you can catch it all at glveg.net slash listen.